just get right down to business. The Joe Roberts Show. This, this is The Joe Roberts Show. The Joe Roberts Show. The Joe Roberts Show. On today's show, we have Chris Sullivan, the portfolio manager of Hyperion Decimus. We're going to discuss details about the company as well as the broader digital asset investing landscape. Hyperion is a Florida-based crypto quant hedge fund. Chris, thanks for joining us today. Why don't you get started with how you guys formed and take it from there? So about three quarters of our team was together working on futures over ETN arbitrage and VIX and what we generally call like volatility trading. But some of my co-founders go back to late 90s HFT trading. So we, we had done some investments in private equity, like basically the first Bitcoin ATM. I've done some modest mining, had received some payments or poker rewards in Bitcoin way back in the day. So aware, enamored by the white paper, but that wasn't what we were doing as a career at the time. Long story short, we, we had some winnings or earnings from the fund we were operating at the time. We were just looking at the landscape of hedge fund managers because we knew like, hey, we don't have time to dive in every blockchain. There's five or six assets at the time. Ironically, Dose was one of them we were looking at back then. You know, so I think it's the third Elvis, by the way. Yeah. Don't quote me perfectly, but I think it's the third Elvis. So we just wanted to hand our money over to a pro in blockchain, a pro in crypto trading. Well, little did we know about all the exchange infrastructure and how really weak the tech was on that end versus the tech on the blockchain side. So long story short, we just said, you know what the hell with it? We'll do it ourselves. <laughs> Here we are four years later. I think I've aged 25 years. <laughs> you know, I think for our perspective, it just was so enamoring from an innovation, creativity, and it kind of embodies and exudes freedom, right? Competitiveness, Darwinism, all, all in, it's like the whole kit and caboodle, especially with Bitcoin, Monero, certain privacy coins, and then separately on layer one protocols like Ether, Solana, and Avalanche. So we just fell hook, line, and sinker. Now, while the founders and headquarters is in Florida, we've got a presence in Stanford, Connecticut, Chicago, and Los Angeles, growing the team to about 11 folks at this point and having a lot of fun. Cool. And so what I guess what is some of the biggest challenges over the last few years you guys have encountered? The first was really tech build, because coming from the more traditional hedge fund space, you, you have what's called a prime brokerage relationship, usually with more than one bank. In, in our case, we we're JP Morgan and Goldman Sachs and Kenneth Fitzgerald. So we have three. And you're basically piggybacking on their market-making desk and their what's called direct market access algorithms into NASDAQ or Amex or et cetera, et cetera. So being used to that and almost spoiled by it, we jump in and we're like, wait a minute, that stamps a REST API? And you're like refreshing an HTML page to get your order in queue on the order book. And so that was like both fun and scary because we, we took for granted execution algorithms or strategy algorithms. We took for granted the infrastructure that the arms race late 90s, early 2000s really put together for a lot of traders. Like even when Joe, you and I were kids or just started trading, we weren't on a, a phone, you know, whacking away on an app. That, that wasn't possible. And, and whether it should be or not is debatable. But so we really did a huge lift into the initial launch, 18, 19 of the fund on the tech end. I would argue it's an ongoing lift because you really need heavy level machine learning that can adapt really, really quick and evolve. So that's one set of hardware and software that you need to accomplish that. The separation of delineating execution algorithms, which are trying to not overpay, trying to be passive in order flow, which is market-making order flow, execute at best X, not cross the spread. And then strategy, which is you know if this, then that. 
delineating that, separating that, and putting that apparatus together when previously we could just point and click in that ecosystem that existed in equities, options, and futures. That was really the, the first couple of years. Now we're, we're really jumping into how to create rating systems and auditing smart contracts and code itself so that we're combining what is easy for us, like the quantitative metrics, that's just math, very easy. The qualitative is more fundamental analysis. Well, that, that's a lot of subjectivity and you actually need a, a lot more expertise in blockchain than really you would analyzing financials from a stock, for example. A lot more complex, a lot more dimensions. And at the highest level, right, for the investors that may not be aware exactly what a crypto quant hedge fund is and does, can you can break that down in simple terms? Yeah, I mean, arguably, our thesis is to still have the net long, right? But our goal is to cut the tails off. So if you're looking at distribution curve, right, too much right tail can get scary, right? People like seeing lots of gains and unrealized gains, but it's always careful what you wish for. But at the same time, nobody likes seeing down 80. So the purpose of the quantitative data is to kind of live in the middle and use probability distribution, convexity, and risk reward to line up so that ideally the fund captures 70, 80% of up cycles and then defends 30, 40% against down cycles. So that we're not getting our, you know, what's handed to us when it tanks. We're also, if it goes straight up, we're not capturing all of that because nothing responsible ever would or risk manage. And we just live in the middle. And basically, since our history, the compounding has, we're actually 600% ahead of Bitcoin because of compounding in the same four year period. Got it. And so, what I've maybe observed over at least the last handful of years has been most of the money that I've noticed where let's call it more people became millionaires and billionaires has been in the part where they are buying and holding over the longest duration of period in the market, right? And through all the volatility. So, what is it about, I guess, your process? That makes it unique versus just doing a buy and hold strategy. Well, buy and hold's the absence of strategy. <laughs> well, I mean, you got initial due diligence. I'll say, you know, from my personal self, right? Like, so I've at one point, I don't even want to tell you how much Bitcoin I've run at one point because it's embarrassing. And I, if I hadn't sold it, it'd be amazing. <laughs> but, you know, the trader mentality, every time you triple up, you got to take chips off the table. There's nothing wrong with doing that. But one of the impetus, impetuses of creating this fund was so that myself and my partners could deploy more capital in the space, both efficiently and tactically, versus just saying, hey, I've got 50 Bitcoin, then it's up 40%, then I'm taking off 20 Bitcoin, and then I'm putting back on 20 Bitcoins down 20%, right? Doing all of that trading, what does it do that's really annoying, Joe? If Even if we're winning, which is good, it creates a ton of taxes. Yep. Well, that's not efficient. And then when you do the math, all right, I doubled up and you sold, a third comes off to taxes, right? Well, then you have to have it drop below that third to break even, plus all the time, yada, yada, yada. So that was where, hey, every time bit's down 30, I'm buying more and I'm leaving it here in custody. And then here's my way to deploy more capital in a cost-effective, efficient way that's not going to be subjected to the huge tails and just being long. Maybe what I'm trying to say is, Typically in the you know Wall Street, what's been known as over trading or trading for certain fees, right? And what I've maybe seen in the crypto landscape is definitely a long-term buy and hold approach is ultimately rewarded. And I want to know is kind of how that balance comes out here. Um, well, like I just said, we're six hundred points ahead of Bitcoin, so 
<laughs> so, you know, it's, it's an effect of compounding, not like peak to trough analysis by just not losing, you know, just like this last quarter when bit went down, you know, 55 to 60%, we gave back about eight. So just not going down that much and then grabbing the turns and, and not catching all 20 of the next month at 16. That's how you just keep ratcheting up your net asset value of your holdings. So it's it's not like people try and fight in this better or worse or all or nothing. That's not the public is sold on this so that they always lose their money, right? <laughs> this fight between active and passive. Well, passive is the absence of strategy. That is the lacking of it. And there's nothing wrong with doing that. But with an asset like this, it's prudent to have some active risk management, right? That's really how I look at it. And that if it's done properly and methodically, it tends to win over compounding over time. So you can look at it with the same time rise, like, okay, I'm going to invest in this active quant strategy, and I'm going to keep buying Bitcoin every dip or whatever token you like. That can't really lose over time because you're balancing your own emotions with the P&L and the NAV, and then you're giving yourself a chance to win twice via hedging and compounding and then via long-term growth of the asset price. Can you kind of uh, break it down to how you guys are structured? I'm assuming, obviously, open-ended. What are the qualifications to participate? Yeah, it's, it's pretty standard. Delaware came in old-school hedge fund structure. We are family-owned. This is partner-owned, partner-funded, self-funded. We have no no outside owners or influencers. It's, it's literally a, a family business. It's the typical accreditation status. Anybody, I think it's 270 of income is now what it's up to, or a million of, of net worth can invest. We would much prefer to help make families and hardworking folks more wealth than necessarily, you know, other funds per se, because it's more meaningful to us. And we create it for ourselves. Our our money sits in the fund at the same fee structure as our clients, by the way. We're not one of those, hey, we have a fund to collect fees. That's not fun. And the fees don't really cover the CapEx either. So that's the other honest truth. And you mentioned earlier, how many people are on the team currently? Eleven. In the office I'm in now in Florida, there's six of us. And then we have five distributed. How does the crypto market cycles play into your strategy? We try to solve for all. No cycle is the same. So while there is some really eerily, what we call auto harmonics between the 13, 17 cycle with where we are exactly now, where we're about to hit the fifth wave parabola, no cycles are the same, right? So how those got to be violently both up and down, 13 and 17, you have to look at the tech infrastructure the holders and the wallets, right? I don't expect the same result. That doesn't mean up or down or percentage. This is just going to be different. Number one, we now have two shenanigans vehicles that are called ETFs. They're actually ETNs, and I don't know why they're calling them ETFs. (laughs) I think maybe four or five years ago, exchange-traded notes became bad words for ETFs, but that's what these things are. They own futures, which have contango costs, trading costs, and I'm just not a fan of that for any asset, let alone this one. What that could do is create larger realized volatility on short term and then lengthen the overall cycles. Because instead of it being fewer participants, fewer wallets, like we had 17 and 13, where you couldn't access it from a gazillion venues. Like right now, people have it on Cash App, PayPal. There's Bitcoin teams at Walmart, right? In 17, and you know this, Joe, you had to really, really try to buy some Bitcoin. It was not easy, right? It was just hard to get open accounts everywhere. Right, small staff. So 
I think the breadth and saturation good for adoption, and that's pricing in via net calf ratio, et cetera. But it's just not going to mirror it exactly. I'm already surprised. I'm saying that with a caveat because I'm already surprised at how identical 13 and 17 look to exactly now. Almost within a 10-day variance, by the way, it's autoharmonic by 96%. Autoharmonic means the same formation, basically. Got it. And so how do you guys kind of give the listeners an idea of how do you come to that conclusion? Like what are those quantitative metrics that you look at that provide that opinion? Well, the easy one is it just looks the same, right? That, that's the easy one. But we do hourly analysis, daily bars. We actually create them to formulate our, our analysis because there's there used to be no real good price feeds. So you'd have to build the tick data yourself. Luckily, our team knew how to do that from back in the day on stocks and options. So we were able to construct that for crypto. So when you're just looking at price, and I like to look at daily, weekly, bi-weekly candles, and then quarterly candles, the formations are nearly identical. And then you look at trend lines, Fibonacci reciprocals up and down, and everything's like kind of linking up. In fact, on stock to flow, we're actually below the midpoint right now. So we try and coalesce what I like to call a weight of the evidence viewpoint. And it's actually really harmonious to the previous two cycles. And do you believe stock to flow is on par with where we're going? Stock to flow is a very, very valid commodity and analytical tool. However, similar to what may or may not happen to Bitcoin, what broke gold and silver's relationship with stock to flow? ZTFs. So I think there's a two or three more year window where the adherence to that discipline and that modality will be the case, but there's going to be negative effects from this. Overfinancialization of anything is never good. It becomes a more efficient market. No, crypto is the most efficient market on the planet because the price is what a willing buyer and seller want to transact at. That's what makes something efficient. The most mispriced market is bond market. Second would be stock market. Interesting. And like they're telling you, oh, it's efficient because I can get price execution. Yeah, well, how's Citadel doing with that, guys? So everything from that standpoint, in my opinion, is a illusion at best, theft at worst. Well, let's go into the, like the key aspects of how you underwrite certain tokens, certain projects on the quantitative side. I feel like there's more data available now than there was four years ago. Whew, yeah, I think for the for the listeners, Joe, I would say there's some really good aggregators of this, right? Like CryptoQuant, super solid, Glassnode, awesome, into the block crypto, the block crypto, Glassnode. Who am I leaving out? Chain analysis. Those half dozen dozen are really good aggregators of the first data that I think is, is really important, which is first derivative, which is on-chain data, right? And then you've got second derivative, which can either be flows or other crypto-specific or crypto-native blockchain data. What I like to look at is the rate of change of new wallet addresses before the capital even comes in, right? That's something that we've actually created our own internal indicators on some of the native chain data and combine that with a more typical price or price indicator price oscillator with an on-chain data point and create a moving average of the two. So we've got a, a view of the trend of the data points. How we appraise individual projects is a little more deeper and dynamic. We are very old school and because we're kind of techies plus contrarians, we look at the team. Like we want to see the developer side we want to see the activity, which GitHub is one way to monitor that. For those who are in software development, they know how to take a look at this stuff. And then we want to see the breadth of where the token 
trades, who their counterparties are, whatever the banks are, their funds already in it, are their big OG crypto folks already behind it. And then we drop down into the code itself. Is it proof of work? Is it proof of stake? Is it delegated proof of stake? And we've got kind of opinions on all three or four different types of blockchain code. We have an internal bias towards layer one, which I can explain later why that occurs. But then once you get past that initial qualitative analysis, then you can jump into auditing a small contract, right? That also includes, is there insurance? What's the throughput? How does it break? Who are the counterparties? There's, there's all these metrics that go into kind of the safety rating of a smart contract or scoring. DeFi, we've developed a whole another kind of rating system. We, we call it kind of a scoring where you're just kind of rating what's less bad is where we start from. But what, what's ironic is you see all these flows, this leverage in DeFi, and then it just got tested a month ago. And then in May, I can't remember, it was 9.4 billion or 8.9 billion auto licked in a day and all the smart contracts were perfect. Not even a penny unaccounted for. Of course, people got stopped out, lost money and got called. But the fact that it functioned real time like that was, it blew me away. I'm actually surprised, not to get too bullish, I'm surprised that DeFi is not like multiple legs higher already. Do you think that's just because more users, more capital inflows is really a call to institutional or larger capital base has not float in they're not touching it they're, they're concentrating bitcoin either right now and they're really kind of just coming in by the way john i know you already know this but like as far as like allocators are concerned that's just now happening yeah i think since uh michael Saylor kind of started his bitcoin move last year i think people anticipated people coming in a lot faster over last year and i don't think that happened yeah even from my perspective when you start to see seven or ten corporations buying it Tesla being one, obviously, MicroStrategies, the whole company is basically Bitcoin. I think, A, Sailor is right. It's apex predator. Bitcoin is an apex predator. And people should really, really look into why he said that and what he means by that. Because when you really digest it from that perspective, like, why would I have any other asset? <laughs> Which you don't want to not be diversified, but it's that important to you and your portfolio and maybe even more important to the world. And he articulates that a lot better than I I can, so I won't even try. But I was in the same camp, Joe. I thought, well, everybody's going to come. Why wouldn't they be hedging? Because it's better than gold, but don't not own gold. Like I'm not an extremist or maxi or all, all or none. I, I like distributing risk over time horizon, time interval, and volatility interval. But that's because we're quants is how we think of things, like risk-adjusted returns, like sharp ratio. But I, I did expect a lot more corporations to be defending their portfolio. And now look, they're idiots in two ways. You just decayed the crap out of your fiat purchasing power. You can't keep up with inflation by repricing and charging customers more. And you didn't invest in the asset that has doubled. Good, good job. Like if I'm on the board of any of these large caps, I'm like, all right, who didn't buy Bitcoin? You're fired. I think that's what we may see play out in the next couple of years? Probably not. <laughs> it's a nice side. You mentioned several different things and to kind of start from the top is if someone's looking at, you know, coin market cap or one of these where they have thousands of tokens, right? What's those initial filters that they even have to get through for you guys to even start underwriting, you know, to bring that down to a select few? Yeah, great question. So the easiest one first is market cap, right? So we like to only look at, we're not a very speculative fund. This is actually, despite it being a high octane, heavy trading hedge fund, the purpose is very conservative, right? 
why do you have all the tech? Why do you have all the algos? It's to not lose money. It's not to make money, right? Offense by playing defense. So we first filter by top 100. Then we filter on one-day liquidity, 30-day liquidity. What we're looking for is taking, because there, there's basically, if you go on coin market cap, there's the total float, and then there's the available float for trading. Well, you need to know what that quotient is to then calculate, okay, is this someone trading the same token over and over again? Are these new buyers or are these new sellers? So we want to quantify what that exposure is based on the available supply for trading. What we don't want to see is like, oh, only 6% is available for trading. Well, what if the foundation or the big investor or whoever it is that owns all of this just decides to dump it if it's up here, right? We don't want that risk and we can quantify that. So what we're looking for is a, a well-distributed open source token that's available in high volume tradable quantities on multiple exchanges. If it's isolated to one or two, if it's small market cap, not a lot of traded float, that just has a lot of risks introduced to trading it. Like one, I was I was extremely wrong on the safe moon, which went completely nuts. But all my friends were like, you know, calling me, texting Sully, how, how about if I safe moon? I, I'm like, the safe moon, you know what I mean? Like what, I look into it, are you, are you kidding me? And sure enough, I don't know what thousands of percentage points it went up. But. Well, the problem is I think in crypto, no matter what, it doesn't matter what you're doing, you're always going to miss ones, right? Because there's just too many tokens. And when when they rise, most of them rise at the same time. So, you know, to your point, people always feel like they're missing some run, right? And then what happens, and you're seeing this now, like there's actually a lot more diverse moves now. You've got kind of DeFi, proof of stake, proof of work, and then Bitcoin, right? They're all actually a lot less correlated than they were previous two cycles, right? Everything was leader lag on bit. Like yep. if it stands still, alts rip. If bit tanks, alts tank twice as much. If bit's ripping, alts can go down because everybody's running the bit, which is what we just saw this month in October. What's interesting here is you've got very non-correlated moves. When bit's down, there's some that are up now. And that's that's not something I would like adhere and build an algorithm around because this is a newish phenomena, but it's good at sign of a healthy market. It shows that breadth is widening. Adoption has already widened because you're getting these differentiated moves. For those like trying to kind of sniff out better opportunities, I think one of the key things is the development going on. Like for layer ones, it's easier to assess that because they're the base layer, they're a utility token, and essentially of infinity value because if stuff keeps building upon them, that just makes them a numerator larger. With layer twos, especially bridge and interoperability tokens or something that's kind of like a one-trick pony-like link. It's an amazing oracle, right? Or they're probably the best at it, but I'm not sure that that would deserve a multi-thousand dollar price with just kind of one feature to it. But when you look at Solana and Avalanche, they offer the same build capabilities Ethereum. They can host NFTs, they can have real estate tokens, they can do all of that stuff, but they're doing it you know, 10 to 20 times, 30 times the speed at a fraction of the cost. So that's a lot more easy to appraise as an investor to the upside downside potential versus, you know, pick on SafeMoon, pick on Shibu, like pick on Doge. Like Doge isn't anything, but it's a really pure betting instrument. I'm sure you've looked at the patterns. They're flawless. They're textbook, by the book patterns, pure expression of fear and greed real time. Now, would someone say that's just market makers doing their thing and kind of manipulating the market? Or what do you say it is? No, 
patterns being pure shows that market makers aren't manipulating it. Got it. Yeah. So when you also mentioned on-chain and new wallets, right? Do you look at the minimum amounts or the amounts actually held in these different wallets? And how much does that take into part your calculations? That's that's a great question, Joe. Shows you know what you're talking about. Audience, listen to Joe. So we actually take the tails of it. I want to see humongous whale wallets. And then I want to see the quantity of the min wallets on both axes. In the middle, it doesn't matter as much because one is showing who's holding at scale or selling at scale, and the other is new participants. In the middle, it's it's like us, right? We're in, we're never leaving. We're going to continue to lay it all online for crypto, but newcomers matter a lot. And then who holds the most matters a lot. All right. Well, can you break that down a little bit? Like the largest holders, right? Is it based on their activity that would kind of influence your moves? And also on the newcomers, how would that influence your moves? It doesn't in so far as the fund is concerned. Like the algorithms take into account all this stuff real time. What we look for as a really big bearer signal is when a whale wallet, which is oftentimes an exchange or a miner, right? When it's coming from custody onto an exchange, it's coming to sell. It's not coming to do anything else. That's the most bearish tell in the crypto space. Conversely, on the other side of it, what's available to buy on exchange? If you go to Glassnode, they've got a great chart that shows Bitcoin on exchange and then the price. It's literally down like this. I think it's 42% has come off offline. Well, at some point, we're having a supply shock. We haven't even seen anything close to it yet. That's also likely why the SEC, I don't want to speak for them, but why a futures ETF or ETM was approved first versus spot, because there's not enough spot for an ETF. You're looking at, so 2,000 contracts times five Bitcoin at 50, that's like round math at 60K, like do the math. If you take that and extrapolate the spot, it's not even possible because not that much is going to sell. You're carrying the price orders of magnitude higher to induce selling at that point. So being in the space for the last you know four years or so, you definitely learn, try not to pay attention to too much news, right? Because it tries to persuade you in a direction. Yeah, we don't have this many news. <laughs> that's good. No, news doesn't move markets, Joe. Yeah. Like this is a misnomer. Not forgive me if that's your belief. No, no, no. I, I believe every move that happens, they got to create a story around just to have a justification to publish something to get get clicks. Ding, ding, ding. You know what I mean? But what I'm trying to say is, the news always provides, I guess, stories to persuade people to think in certain directions, right? So most of the time, you can't believe what they're saying because obviously, institutions have been coming to the market for three years now, right? And when it comes to the supply shock, we're hearing that more and more. How does one who's newer also understand how to measure the real supply shock versus kind of just hearing what the noise is putting out there? Right. So I say supply shock because I'm making an assumption that more and more participants are trying to enter the market for the first time and acquire coin for whatever reason, whether it's an ETF, a hedge fund, a family office trying to get their money out of the bank, highly recommended, by the way. Um, That's my assumption. If that assumption is wrong, then there won't be a supply shock. How does the supply shock manifest? Well, it can't be its its own factor. It's always, as I said, weighted evidence, multi-factor analysis. So how one could theorize that one could see a large supply shock is, hmm, Joe, how's that ETF constructed? It's front month futures contracts, right? When you roll, you've got, this is options talk, but you've got Greeks, Delta, Vega, most specifically Gamma, associated with that. And how it would correlate to the options, which really are where those Greeks are derived, right? So what you could have is essentially 
market makers and opinions or trend traders position short, a natural role of the futures contracts in this product, new participants come online and more crypto come off. And at some point there's that trigger and it's short covering rather, option gamma pull, market maker, the whole nine. And then you go, oh, Bitcoin used to go up 40%, 50% a month. There we go. And you have a huge move that occurs. Now it's doing that pretty close this month. So I would argue we've seen like an initial view of what a baby supply shock could look like. How do people kind of gauge at what point we'll call it certain whales or certain players will actually start reducing their exposure and kind of add more supply? There's one view that you can see a lot of market making activity uh, churning and burning. And then there's the others where they're liquidating leverage traders, whether long or short. And then lastly, there's the organic spot selling. And really the volume and monitoring wallets are the largest clue to that. And I think it's important to like kind of view things depending on how fancy someone is. I like looking at the shortest time horizon and extrapolating to the largest time horizon. But for most folks, do the inverse of that. Start it quarterly or yearly charts or weekly charts and then get granular from there. And it tells a story that you should be able to obviously pick out. If you cannot, then you need your money professionally managed. <laughs> most people do. And in fact, like some of my largest clients happen to be at these, the largest professional management institutions you've ever heard of, they're just not crypto folks, right? So same with my capital. I, I send it to the top talent in the space. I, I'm agnostic. I'm not trying to run all my capital. That's not time efficient. That's interesting. So when it comes to key metrics on the qualitative side, right? Can you give us you know, a handful of things that you guys are looking at? Yeah, I mean, I, I think auditing the code really is like where it breaks or doesn't break because what you can see on GitHub is you know the debugging that occurs and, and you can see rollouts, you can go into a sandbox, you can see testnet transitioning to mainnet. Those processes and just observing them can kind of give you a much higher confidence interval than if they're not going through those processes or if they've not been tested. Like something that doesn't go from testnet to mainnet, that's just insane. I won't invest in that. Right, because there's defined processes that crypto practitioners look for to just essentially risk manage before they enter the investment. Do you guys have relationships with the teams in the projects at all? Yes. And how important do you think that is? It doesn't affect our investment level, which is a quant algorithm. It has nothing to do with how much I like or dislike something. But most of these teams are pretty accessible. So we want to be able to ask questions and say, hey, you know, like, for example, Bitcoin, why it's so awesome is it doesn't have a team. It's taproot update coming up next two weeks. That to me is going to be a material improvement in Bitcoin's interoperability, transferability and speed and transactions per minute. But on, you know, let's say Cardano or Dash or you know, any of these others that have foundations, MakerDAO, right, on DAI and Maker, we want to be in contact with them. Say, hey, here's here's our couple questions. Here's how we're appraising it. Do you guys have any questions for us? How can we help? Because we're really, a lot of the folks in crypto space want it both horizontally and vertically integrated into society to try and literally affect change for good, not just increase people's net worth. So most of the folks are very open to communicating. And, and certainly the large majority of them are all about improving on what they've built. Most of the coders are pretty humble 
and want to you know have the best product and design that their team has put together. Now, there's been some recent hacks in DeFi that have occur occasionally, right? You mentioned audit the code, maybe you find some problems, but do you think at some occasions it's just a team maturing and fixing the bugs and moving forward? I, I have a hard time actually extrapolating a correlation between weakness of code and hacking because let's say we're going to like El Salvador's Bitcoin conference next week or two weeks from now, right? Are we going to advertise that we have hundreds of thousands of Bitcoin wallets on us? Probably not, right? Because that would attract <laughs> even the local you know, tortilla salesman versus the cartel, right? They're going to come after you because you're offering free money. So I think the point of that story is the larger protocols are naturally going to attract hackers because of their size. And the risk reward to the hacker is solid. Like there are a lot of weak protocols that never get touched. So I, I'm not able to find a correlation between the two. There may be one, but I'm just not seeing it real time. All right. Well, how about when it comes to community, community score, social media metrics, Twitter, Discord? What do you guys look at and what type of correlation might that have to price? I will show my age here, which is 40. I would fade and short any signals from that space. We don't look at any of that. We don't believe in it. I'm happy if we're wrong. That is not an investment grade way to analyze things. That's interesting. Heard, fine. And maybe that leads you to trade Shibu, Doge, or Facebook <laughs> at all. But that's not what I do with my money and certainly not what I'm doing with our clients' money. I don't mean to be forceful there, but it's just silly to try and look at those things as, as a, a measuring tool. No, I think it, the purpose of the question is there. I think most people probably actually would believe that a lot of firms are making positions or doing certain things off of some type of social media influence. I hope they're not. <laughs> that's a good that's a good answer you know how's it going to work if you get subpoenaed by the sec oh we're following signals on twitter all right that'll hold up you know i'm hypercritical because i've been pit trading been a market maker ball trader like i've seen more mistakes happen than, than not and i think sentiment which is all those things are joe those are sentiment indicators the way i approach it is to fade it on extremes like one of the most beautiful things that happened in, in the correction in the end of Q2 and the Q3 was you literally had peak FUD and a Wyckoff accumulation pattern in real time right in front of everybody. I can't believe everybody's so stupid, Joe. And they just paper hand it into a blue. <laughs> I'm like, hey, does anybody, okay, spring's coming, 29K, it's going to do it again. And it was max fear. If we're already at max fear sentiment, how can you quantify it going down another 50% when it's already down? I think it was 55% or 54% when it hit that max FUD. Um, you're going to sell there? I don't care what the asset is. You go the other way. So the way I look at those those sentiment aggregating, and I actually I have an algo that aggreg aggregates. Of course I do. But we're not actually trading off. It. It's just to look for extremes. So talking about community, like... Cardano, right? You know, they're known for having, we'll call it the diamond hand type of community, mm -hmm. probably a good percentage participates in staking. So does the amount of tokens being staked or the percentage and the hold time, I guess, come into play? Great question, because that's very nuanced, right? We were the first fund to stake. I'll take some credit for that in 2018. And we've run Masternodes, first fund to do that as well. So 
I think there's value in having a very robust, multiple singles that are very robust, validating transactions, delegating banking. All that is extremely important for a healthy ecosystem and to bring out more participants and more build. I think what you're asking is, does that count for a reduction of supply on exchange and therefore create upside? Sure. Mathematically, it does. But there, because it's so easy to get things in and out of staking, there's a price that someone's going to be induced to sell. Where if I'm in cold, cold at copper or Gemini, well, that's a pain in the ass to get it out of, right? Unless I'm up like 50x, which I probably still wouldn't sell, you know, you're not going to have the same inducement to sell than if, if you're in Solana at 30, goes to 100. I'm like, oh, well, the six isn't worth it. Let me sell some. So I think it's a little less robustly bullish than Bitcoin being put into cold storage, but it does accomplish the same thing. It reduces the traded supply. One of the things I think Ether's done very well ahead of the 2.0 launch is the burning because it's about 9%, 8.5%, 9% deflationary once you factor in the launch of 2.0, which is radical. Like, I could buy a deflationary asset? Holy cow. So I think with respect to each individual one, it depends. Do you guys have a weekly newsletter or anything that you guys kind of present your opinions on? Only for clients. <laughs> I'm not even kidding you, Joe. We have, we have an internal portal for our clients. Our internal stuff is on a private server, private VPN. Yep. Not because we think we're right, actually, because the opposite. Like we're constructing theses and postulating, and we don't want it all over the place because... A lot of noise. Yeah. And a lot of it is experimenting with math, to be very, like, very honest. And I'm cool because our client base is relatively small, even though we're a decent-sized fund. This is a a family type business. We're not going to be open-ended forever, probably just through Q2, to be very frank. And so our, our research, no one's doing it and, and we're not going to publish it for pay and we're not going to publish it for free. So our clients get our, our opinions. So how many, typically how many active positions might you have in a portfolio? Great question. We're old school. So we like kind of like the 30, the Dow 30, right? It's enough to where you can have four or five sectors, which there are in crypto but enough concentration so that your conviction can come through in alpha, right? We actually vacillate between 25 and 35, depending on the trend. Never more than 35, never less than 25. When you say sectors, do you also, I guess, kind of play into what is otherwise known as the themes within crypto? I would kind of wrap in things like Axie Infinity, which is epic, super capitalist, huge fan. But that's still DeFi, even though it's gaming, right? And then NFTs, very hard to define, but we'll call it like still DeFi. You can trade the, the natives on exchange, but you're not trading the NFTs per se on a sex exchange. And OpenSea is just a lion in that space. They've really crushed it. So that's how we look at it. But really, we start first, Joe, layer one, layer two, and then go, okay, privacy tokens. Okay, DeFi exchanges, sex, DEX, FTX, for example, that's a sex exchange. That's a token. Binance, that's a really nuanced one because you've got the smart chain platform and it's a native exchange token. So that actually gives you like dual diversification. I'm not trying to do a commercial for Binance coin. I'm just telling you how we're kind of quantifying both aspects of it. And so how do you determine with these positions, like the uh, minimum or maximum type exposure and percentage in the portfolio? That's one part subjective bias. Our team overweights layer one versus layer two. So the largest weightings in our fund have nothing to do with quant, have everything to do with how we appraise it. So layer ones are utility tokens. So we're de facto kind of 
solving for regulatory exposure because a utility token will never be a security, right? And I see you smiling, so I, I hope you agree. Yeah, I mean, I think everyone's waiting to hear something, you know, when it comes to a lot of these DeFi tokens. So why don't you just, you know, iterate on that a little bit more in your opinion of where that might even go? Hard to speculate on what imbeciles will do, because that's what bureaucrats are. <laughs> I'll go on record saying that they nobody knows what they're talking about, including me. We just have strong opinions because we've done research. I would argue that, from our perspective at least, commodities, which, you know, you're a real property guy. Real assets are the way to build wealth. Paper assets, you can trade. The people who've made billions trading are like this many, right? So real assets and long-term investing horizon is how you how you win. So for me, like the realist assets in crypto are really kind of segregated to Bitcoin and privacy tokens and then layer one protocols. The sort of one purpose or one trick ponies they may be commoditized insofar as their modality, but the underlying code is not the commodity. Like Bitcoin's code is its commodity, right? Ethereum's ability to build on it, that's its commodity. So that, that's how we view it. So the, the fund reflects that overweight bias towards layer one. Now, I'm assuming, you, so you guys are mostly though taking some type of math, whether it's a one, two, three, four, five percent, is that? Yeah, it's, it's like multiples of, of risk exposure is how we view it, not, it, it ends up, being quantified in percentage, but the way we're looking at it is like for every increment of volatility, what's the risk reward? So like Bitcoin's volatility is much different than Dogecoin's, right? So if we're waiting on the quality of the alpha, right, that's got a better distribution of the return expectation. And look at like a phantom. That might have 10 times the volatility of Bitcoin, but could be worth four increments of Bitcoin. So we kind of blend both, not trying to be overly risk managed, but size it appropriately based on the category it's in and then the growth potential versus the risk. And do you have a, a max position size or percentage that any one token could ever be in the portfolio? Yeah. I mean, Bit's going to be plus or minus 30%-ish, like 20 to 30. And then we kind of ratchet down from there, but nothing larger than that because then we can't get the benefits of diversification. And we're not going to be just a Bitcoin fund. Obviously. <laughs> so how do you manage cash? It's hard to be capital efficient, right? What I think our fund's like best risk management component is, is our um, counterparty infrastructure. We have 16 liquidity venues. It's an amalgamation of DeFi, sex exchanges, which means centralized exchanges, decentralized exchanges, as well as OTCs and market makers. So our tech, we have what's called smart order router. Let's say it has a buy Solana signal. It sprays all of the top of books to find best sex and routes. So that means I have to post liquidity to each venue, which means I have idle capital quite a bit. So there's just a sacrifice for the reward you want. If you want to have a three sharper better, high risk reward, high alpha, and you're not so concerned with total return percentage, you're going to have some decay in your potential upside by structuring it properly. So to your point, when a signal is off, it's just a cash. Got it. Because I think that's one of the, everyone obviously can form opinion, but you know, that's one of the biggest questions I think a lot of people ask is how much cash you sit in, you know, do you reduce exposure at a certain point? Like 65% of our funds fully automated. So we don't make a lot of those types of calls on a macro. Like basically the deviation that we kind of give is within call it five to 10% where it's 
a little more risk on, a little less less risk on or risk off. So how that expresses itself, like we've been through pretty huge bear cycles already, so pretty instructable. All right. For the investors that might have a smaller portfolio, right? Maybe they can't access certain funds. What is your advice for them to maybe, or opinion of how they could grow their capital in the digital asset space? It's not easy. (laughs) You really have to kind of untrain the dog, right? Like so many people anchor to unrealized gains or losses. It just prevents them from being able to trade. So, or invest. I would argue, and my friend at Michael Blatar eloquently said this on CNBC recently, the dollar cost averaging is the way to do it. So I even look at what I had in 2013, if I had not touched to now, right? Would it be more? Yes, it would be. So I think looking at my own experience and, and witnessing others and the percentage of accounts that lose money every year, which we have somewhere between 70 and 90% of all accounts lose money, right? Because they're overtrading and people being dumb. But humans are never going to not do that. So how do you not be your own worst enemy? It's a very difficult way to answer it. No, <laughs> don't be human. <laughs> so I think writing three to five trading rules, if you want to trade, I do not recommend it for people to try and trade. You've had, I know Wall Street bets, and that's fantastic and good for everybody that, that wins, but that's greater full theory that's not investing. To be an investor, you have to have a longer-term time horizon. And in crypto, I just have a very simple rule. If it's down 20 or 30, I'm buying more. I don't even care about the upside. Because, you, I mean, the upside is up only over 10 years, maybe, right? Well, with multiple 80% drawdowns in between, or 60% drawdowns, which is awesome, because then I get to size up even more. I just think harness all the weaknesses of mankind and use them for your benefit. But you have to be able to train yourself be process driven. If you're going to try and trade, don't trade without a stop. Like literally, what are the first two rules of trading? Never lose money, never lose money. I mean, <laughs> losing money is good if it teaches you a lesson. Yeah. Right? You pay for school, you pay for lessons. You don't learn by winning, you learn by losing. That's all of life. So most people, they concentrate to one asset, they leverage, which is even dumber. We, we don't use any leverage in the fund. That's against the ethos of myself, my partners. Leverage introduces being a forced hand, and that's how you lose when you're forced handed. Number one is really go back to the two rules don't trade money you can't afford to lose, and don't invest money you can't afford to lose. And second, don't trade on a stop. Now, I'm going to caveat that because stop hunting in crypto is rampant. And it's more important to like have your stop maybe off exchange or keep your tokens off exchange and, and just say, okay. I said, if I lose 10 for my entry, I'm going to get out and then put it on itself. Then leave your stop limit sitting on exchange to get auto-licked. And then, oh, it was only there for 10 seconds. And then I didn't get back in. So the usage of stops is, is a hard practice to put in place to make it capital efficient and successful for you. But I think, Joe, you and your listeners understand the, the point of what I'm saying. And just don't try and trade for income. That, that never works out. I've literally never seen anybody do that for longer than like six to eight months. And usually it was the end of 2000 cycle and the, the end of this equity cycle here. Yeah. When, when traders trade in the bull market, they typically don't lose, right? Well, everybody was losing money until essentially COVID, right? Because everybody's home gets stimmies and throw it in the <laughs> yo it in the stock market. I, I can't believe how 
and I, I'll get serious here for a second, but I can't believe how flagrant people take risk with, with capital. And it just shows you that why are we in Bitcoin? Because the, the central banks and governments have basically demoted fiat to be worth so little to us, we literally describe an investment trading thesis as YOLO. <laughs> you only live once? <laughs> now, again, I'm only 40, which maybe is, I've been called boomer before, Joe, but that's just not an, a trading philosophy or investment thesis. All right, well, let's come to a conclusion with the final question we ask our guests. What is the biggest thing you have implemented in your life that has increased your net worth? Having a good wife. That's a great answer. And what aspects has that helped? Well, I think as a father and husband, you some people don't, but you innately kind of gravitate towards your best self because you have to, right? You have to provide. You have to show love. You have to show affection. You have to show compassion and empathy. And I think from my perspective, I had enough skill and acumen before that happened, where I made a lot of dumb but fun mistakes, made and lost a lot of money being an idiot because you have the ego and you have the mindset that you're indestructible, which you are, 23, 24, you are. So I think from my perspective, I was able to kind of coalesce a lot of the, the quant stuff and be a lot more responsible as a result of life and kids. The talent skills always there. It's almost genetic. You can't learn talent. You can maybe teach yourself the differences between C plus and Python, right? But either you're an alpha or you're not, or you're a rock star, or you are a swimmer, or you're a football player. Like that's pretty much 90% genetic. That's how I would answer that. Also, be a voracious reader, be an empath, and most importantly, with yourself, because you need to constantly reflect to get better. Like at my firm, we're constantly analyzing both the best trades and worst trades to look at, hey, could the code have done better? Was the evolution too fast? Was it too slow? Was the time horizon one hour? Is that too small? Does it need to be 12 hour? Constantly do that because in science, the skeptics win, right? No hypothesis. That's actual scientific method. That's how I would argue everybody can utilize to get better. Well, I appreciate sharing that. And for any of the listeners that might want to reach you or you on Twitter, or what's the best way? I don't have any social media. <laughs> <laughs> so... We do have an investor relations department, but you know our site is uh, hyperindustments.com. We do have a contact page. I'm just Chris at Hyperindustments. Like I said, we're a family shop, so we, we're not going to ignore anybody. Anybody contact us right here in humble Florida, looking to make it our own country, right? Let's go, Brandon. And uh, Is the crypto movement real or what? It already won. Yeah, so yeah. What I told some of our clients earlier today is that Bitcoin just won the battle, and now the game begins. So... I'm not going to do price targets and all that stuff because it's very subjective. But where do you want your money, Joe? That's simple. Well, without price targets, let's just leave off at the last, right? What's going to happen next six to 12 months? Not from a price standpoint, but just overall, maybe economy and the market. Well, the economy is in a depression. Yep. And it has been, right? Where I would quantify this from a historical perspective is when the Fed stepped in August 2019 in the repo market because there's no liquidity. Like you hear on TV, oh, there's cash on the sidelines. There's no cash on the sidelines. That is a fit. And by the way, they're printing at max. The printers run out of ink, right? We're in hyperinflation and we're in a depression. So I think ultimately the only thing that kicks it off to the positive is you got to increase the velocity of money. How do you do that? They got a jack rates to 8-10%, which nukes the entire bond stock market, which is awesome for everybody else. 
like literally nuking that to zero makes all the working class folks and savers make five times the money they're making now, if not maybe six or seven times. That's more valuable to the economy. Without the velocity of money, you can't juice GDP. We're living on ether, for lack of a better <laughs> So I, I think maybe you see the Fed raise rates. I doubt it. I think they're just going to keep printing till it implodes on itself. That's why diversifying into crypto is very important now. You're not late, you're not early, and you're probably in a position where it's the least risky because think about the launch of the ETF, right? Now the, oh, the government's going to shut it down. Well, that's not going to happen because Wall Street's in this now. So you literally do not have that risk, which was the only risk I was kind of faced with when telling people about our fund four years ago. Oh, the government's going to shut it down. That's not going to happen now. Or less likely to happen. I don't, I don't like speaking absolutes. Yeah, correct. It, it's kind of validated. And I think you could easily see 100K or higher. But I'd like to convey to the listeners, I don't even think in dollar terms anymore. And I'm sure you're probably already there too, Joe, because you've been in this for a long time, where we, we dream in Satoshis. But what it means in dollars is literally irrelevant. And how you draw connection with that is ask the Venezuelans how their boulevard did. Right? Look at gold in yen terms. So everything is relative. I think for people to not have this in their overall portfolio asset allocation is a lot riskier than if they don't. It's too binary. I agree. And most will be late to the party. <laughs> yeah. It's hard to, oh, I don't understand it, Joe. I mean, you're doing a great job with, with your informational podcast and bringing on really good folks to try and convey passionately good information for your listeners. but. People just have to get over themselves. You don't have to have thinking absolutes like, what don't you get? And I ask that question to people, they can't even articulate. What is it backed by? Oh, well, that's a fun conversation. Well, math, power, tech, digital real estate. I mean, I could list a million things that give it intrinsic value. And oh, what's the least decentralized currency in the world? One node, Federal Reserve. They can change at any time. The fact that mankind can issue money is, is beyond me. I, I can't believe society has accepted this for that long. Well, let's leave off there. <laughs> it was good. It was good. I appreciate taking the time out and coming out today. A lot of insightful information. Thank you. Appreciate you having me. The Joe Roberts Show.